the Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. With gratitude to voluntary subscribers to this program, Patricia Smith, Joan Falber, and Sherry Willoughby, thank you very much. If you want me, you can find me left of center off of the strip. If you'd like to help you and you're in a position to do so, just log on to PeterBCollins.com. Click on the tab, You Can Help. And you can sign up for a voluntary subscription. The show is distributed free. Anybody can listen without guilt. But if you'd like to support us, you can choose from $5 a month and up for a voluntary subscription through PayPal. And March is Tell a Friend Month here at the Peter B. Collins Show. After you listen to this podcast, or even while you're multitasking during it, send an email out to a friend or friends on your list, and link them up to PeterBCollins.com. And joining me today to kick off the show is my friend John Elliott from San Diego, a former Air America talk show host, and a guy who, like me, has been around the track a few times trying to develop an alternative to the right-wing dominance of talk radio in this country. A few years ago, it was 9 to 1, and uh, it's about 9.6 to 1 uh, these days. John, how you doing? I'm doing well, Peter. Thanks for having me on the program. Good to know that your podcasts are doing so well and the, that you're getting some support out there. In the, it's hard to get support. Um, it, it's hard to get the attention of, uh, of of listeners, especially when the majority of stations, as has been well documented, are controlled by conservatives, and those that they allow us on, um, which is, as you know, has been a, an issue all the way along. They they think we should all sound like uh, like Michael Savage or or um, um, just running off at the mouth and insulting people, and you know when. I guess the, 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 the emails that I remember from Air America was, I like your show because you don't yell at anybody. You don't yell at me. And I think our audience is tired of people yelling at them, and yet the clear channels of the world are playing it very close to the vest. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit later because uh, there are a number of issues there, both on the, uh, the gatekeeper side, the, the program directors in commercial radio, and a serious failure of the left to support those of us who risked a lot to try to re remap the landscape of American, at least talk radio, uh, starting in, in 2003. And uh, it's been a frustrating experience. We'll talk about that. But you called me last week and uh, you brought my attention to part two of uh, an effort by the Obama White House. I'd only seen part one, which was an email that came out in late January asking us to send in information 
on talk radio shows, the call-in number, and a description of the host. And what they did is they turned that into a database, and they're now asking uh, supporters who signed up to the original email list in the 2008 campaign to call in to the right-wing shows and defend the Obama administration. And you and I find this a little cheeky and a little rich because Team Obama ignored talk radio during the 2008 campaign. I can only recall one interview where Senator Obama called in for about five minutes to the Ed Schultz show. But we made repeated attempts to get candidate Obama on my radio show, and I never heard him on with Tom Hartman, uh, with uh, Randy Rhodes, or any of, of the... Didn't hear him on with me either. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's interesting to me that they have belatedly discovered that uh, one of their problems in communication, and uh, there's a Sunday Times article on March 7th about David Axelrod, where he admits that they really have failed to uh, connect uh, as, as a media operation. But um, uh, tell me from your own perspective how you see uh, Obama's messaging problems in the first year of the presidency, and uh, is it a, a little late for them to now try to build some sort of networking to confront the nuts on right-wing radio? Boy, a lot of questions there. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, I did not really pursue either Hillary Clinton or, or Barack Obama on my show. And, and, and the reason I didn't is because I felt that he was going to be out mainstream and there, everybody was going to get a chance to, to talk to him. So I went after Mike Gravel. I mean, I gave Mike Gravel his very first uh, national interview, and uh, I had John Edwards on, and you know, I talked to Chris Dodd and Bill Richardson. So I wanted to expose those people to, to, to the audience, and you know, with the, with the knowledge that the other two were, were front runners, and uh, as it came to pass, everybody else dropped off. That, that then heads us towards the convention, where we were clearly um, not even second-class citizens. We were really third-class citizens. Yeah, we were uh, in the basement under the escalator, and you rode the escalator up to the entrance to the convention hall, and the prime position had been given to Fox News. Wasn't that amazing? <laughs> that uh, just, uh, yeah. It, it, you and I talked about it then, and, and how we were all shuttled off in a corner. The working conditions were really not very good. Um, well, and, and Schultz bolted. Uh, he, got, yeah. he got pissed off uh, at, at the end of day two, and he just left and flew back to Fargo. <laughs> yeah, well, Ed does that, though. Ed, Ed tends to leave. He did the same thing at, uh, at the Take Back America conference a, a couple of years ago in, in Washington, where he wanted the very, very first position when you came into the talk radio area. He wanted to be the very first person there. And uh, they said, sure. So me, me, I kind of like to be at the back where there's less noise, mm-hmm. but Ed didn't anticipate that. So at the end of the first day, he said, I'm not doing this anymore. There's too much noise. Yeah. So he left. Uh, Lionel and I talked about it, and uh, we thought it was a combination of, uh, of uh, uh, Mr. Ed and uh, meets Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> so, just... Well, but in Denver, um, I actually, you know, I, I didn't leave, and uh, I didn't have my own plane to fly back to Fargo or, or Frisco. Uh, but, you know, I think that he had legitimate issues, because... They did give him a prime position with the exit door under the escalator in the basement. Yeah, they did. He could escape and, and do his own thing and go out to the hospitality tents. But uh, yeah. nonetheless, we managed to, to survive. It wasn't very good. We were 
certainly told that uh, the Democratic Party uh, had really no interest in uh, in talk radio, and they just felt that I guess we had to be accommodated. It was almost like you, you felt we were like a student newspaper, you know. They let you into the back door. They don't give you a lot of time, but you can't say you weren't there. Well, and, and what was interesting is that because Team Obama was so focused on television, uh, we saw virtually none of the people who uh, took the podium, whether it was uh, you know the, the governor of Montana or Kathleen Sebelius, who, who spoke, uh, who's now uh, uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, and so the first two days of the convention, it was all pro-Hillary people who, who were populating Radio Row. Absolutely. And I found that phenomenal. That uh, And at that point, you know, they hadn't really publicly acknowledged that Hillary was going to be part of the administration. There was still a faction of very angry uh, Hillary supporters who were threatening to, of course, uh, support McCain in in trying to extract some sort of vengeance from Barack Obama. Uh, and, and so at, at that time, uh, Axelrod and Plouffe and the people who had do, did, done such an excellent job overall during the campaign really dropped the ball because uh, they just didn't care about uh, progressive talk radio in particular. And we ended up uh, going out and recruiting our own guests and, and finding people who were supportive of Obama because the campaign uh, 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 top dogs didn't see it as valuable and didn't even bother. I should, um, uh, I, I think your audience already knows this because I've said it on my show, and we have the, the same uh, people listening to us as, as we know, but uh, my first break into talk radio was courtesy of my friend Peter B. Collins, who uh, started on a thing called Icicle Networks, which is a great idea. It was going to be satellite delivered, uh, and we had a handful of stations. I think we're on Eureka, Santa Fe, mm-hmm. and maybe one or two more. And this was August of, uh, you started this, I think, in June of '03, right? and you took a couple of weeks off in August of '03. I got a chance to sit in. From, the stri- from that, I was able to build a tape of what I was able to talk about, and I took that to Clear Channel in San Diego, got my first start on a, on a weekend. But while I was doing this and trying to prepare to do this, I had some some pretty strong support back east that sent around my demo tapes to a lot of the uh, a lot of the Democrats in Washington and my guys that were representing me, lobbyists, if you will. I uh, had a call with Harold Ickes, and uh, Ickes said, "You know, it's probably time for this because we always thought of Rush Limbaugh as." Uh, uh, a bit of a ho-ho-ho, chuckle-chuckle, nobody certainly believes that nonsense. He's probably talking to a, a vacuum. And then we started to realize that not only was he connecting to the hearts and minds of people, but he was directing them to the ballot box. And we thought, well, when did this start? And we looked back, those of us at the top upper echelon of the Democratic Party, we looked back and saw that it was about you know, 30 or 40 years ago, and it was right after Goldwater lost, where the big money said, well, you know, it wasn't money that caused us to lose this, and we think we had a good candidate, but what is it? So they looked around and thought they didn't have an effective method of communicating with the electorate. Watch how this ties around to current times, huh? Mm-hmm. And they set about doing television, which was the beginning of, of talk TV back then, which was run by Roger Ailes, which didn't do very well, but it was certainly the, the forerunner to, uh, uh, to to Fox News when he got a chance to bump into to Murdoch. And they started, uh, Bob Novak Stun started regenerating um, uh, book publishing, and they started to publish books from the right. They had the American Enterprise Institute that came out, started to put up press releases, the Hoover Institute, the Cato Institute, and they started a, a, a ground air and sea war 
to get their message out to the American public. Included in that was, of course, talk radio. If you had an idea for a show, then they would fund you, they being the Richard Mellon Scapes and a lot of the people connected at that level, the very, very passionate, hardcore, uh, uber-conservative almost way beyond even the neocons. These are people that just needed to get their message out there, and if you're going to do something... I mean, these are the same people that funded the, the two, pair, uh, uh, the two um, highway patrol officers in Arkansas to create false testimony against, um, uh, against Bill Clinton. I mean, right, and, and David Brock, who now runs Media right. Matters, uh, had right. some sort of a, a moment of truth in his life, but he was the, the guy who ghost-wrote and sometimes put his byline on a lot of the dreck that uh, they dug up in the Clinton, the Arkansas Project, it was called. Yes, and also he uh, he wrote the book on Anita Hill and did the columns that called her uh, a little bit nutty, a little bit slutty. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, that was, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, you funny you mentioned David Brock, because I first talked to him during those two weeks uh, in August in, in San Francisco, and he had just come out with Blinded by the Right, yeah. where he had uh, had an epiphany and, and realized that, God, this, these guys were, this is all a, a power grab by them, and they didn't care whether the information was true, and as a, I guess, a real journalist, he was more concerned with truth then than than propaganda. I think he had a, uh, a coming around on, on that. He wrote a, a pretty reasonable book mm-hmm. on Hillary Clinton and was immediately vilified by the right because they expected it to be salacious, and it wasn't. So I, I think that this whole juggernaut of the control of the media by the, the right is not an overnight thing. And you and I have talked about Rush starting in Sacramento, what, 20-odd years ago, 25 years ago, and it took him a long time to get out there and the advantage he had, which is also a, the plus and the minuses, is that there was AM radio and music was morphing away from AM to this newfangled thing called FM. Well, there, and, there's one other element here that I want to inject about Rush that many people don't know, and that is that uh, he was the product of market research, and the market research was paid for by ABC Radio. A guy named Ed McLaughlin, Ed McLaughlin. who uh, had been uh, long ago, he was the uh, uh, general manager of KGO in San Francisco. And then uh, he went on to an ABC talk radio project that was a big failure. Um, but it produced two things. One was the syndication of Dr. Dean Adele, who's a guy I know uh, from Bay Area Radio. And he's been very successful and uh, uh, still on the air, still getting good ratings. And the other was this research project that ABC paid for that uh, found what we call a hole in the marketplace. And the description was non-guested confrontation talk radio. That was their formula. Okay? Don't bother to bring in book authors and elected officials and, uh, you know, the, the commentary class. Just have a guy who is full of himself sit there and rail in a confrontational way. And they went around looking for somebody who could execute that formula. And that's when they found Rush. <clears throat> Rush, I'm sorry. And uh, I think some people know that in the uh, early 90s, I was working at KNBR in San Francisco. And they brought in Rush Limbaugh, uh, the syndicated product. And I remember the staff meeting where they brought us in and they played a tape of Rush attacking homeless people. Uh, and there was a feminazi rant in the demo tape. And we all shook our heads saying, you're going to put this crap on in San Francisco and you think that people will embrace it? Well, um, I was wrong. They were right. But I was the lucky guy 
who was seen as the liberal balance to Rush Limbaugh. And I was their insurance policy. They felt that because particularly his attacks on gays, that um, they needed to be able to say, well, we've got this right wing guy and here's Peter B., our left wing guy. Well, after about two and a half years of following Rush, and I had good ratings, and uh, I enjoyed it in, in a perverse way because I was able to engage with a lot of the ditto heads and sometimes open their minds and very infrequently change their minds. But then they decided they didn't need the insurance, and they fired me over an episode where I had permitted the head of the Teamsters Union to come on and talk about the way uh, Safeway stores was trying to just uh, drive the, the Teamsters uh, off, off the face of the Northern California workplace. And uh, uh, I was called in uh, the next day, and I, I was asked, Peter, do you know that Safeway is the largest single advertiser on this station? <laughs> and you just made a big bite in the hand that feeds you? And I said, look, I invited Safeway to come on the show. <clears throat> I, know, I know about these things. And they declined. And then Safeway lied and said that I had not called and invited them on the show. So this was, and, and I'll name names, her name was Deborah Lambert. She was the uh, deck Director of Public Affairs or PR for Safeway. So uh, they got rid of the Collins problem and replaced me with a yakking sports talk guy named Pete Franklin, who I think was from San Diego. Anyway, uh, that was the point where I think, uh, you know, as KNBR is one example they felt that with the fairness doctrine out of the way, that they had no obligation to counter the deception, the misstatements, the hyperbole, and the occasional hate speech that was part of the Rush Limbaugh formula. And it uh, also led to, that was the era when these hot talk right-wing stations started to pop up, where it was just an entire lineup, usually that included Rush and Dr. Lara, because they were bundled together by the syndicator. And G. Gordon Liddy. Liddy. Uh, that's where Hedgecock uh, surfaced, your former mayor in San Diego. Uh, uh, he's, he's only uh, uh, a good uh, meal away from uh, felony charges. They, they ended up with 26 felony charges. Because you look at these guys, these Republicans that get charged and do things wrong and get convicted, what do they do? They start at you know, Ollie North, G. Gordon Liddy. Roger Hedgecock, they all morph towards um, towards talk radio. It doesn't mm -hmm. say much for our profession. Yeah. So then uh, fast forward to the early aughts and uh, after the, the you know stolen election of 2000, uh, the tax cuts, the uh, res failed response to 9-11. Excuse me, the tax cuts that were put through uh, through resolution? Reconciliation. Reconciliation, excuse me. Yeah, I just, just, just being clear here. I'm sorry. Yes, okay. the evil process of yeah, reconciliation. Yeah. Okay. And in fact, yesterday's New York Times had a, a study from Brookings that showed that it's just shy of a trillion dollars that the Republicans rammed through, crammed down our throats, John, to use their talking points of today, uh, of tax cuts that were, uh, you know, not paid for. And they just said, oh, it's okay. We had a certain, you know, Clinton left us with a surplus, so we're going to burn through it and uh, extend this for 10 years, even though we have no idea uh, what the economy will be like even three years from now. So uh, the idea of Air America surfaced in the, at the end of uh, 2002, and uh, percolated through 2003, the Drobnys, Sheldon and Anita yep. from Chicago, yep. Yep. deserve credit because they, uh, they crafted some press releases. They built the, uh, the perception, some would say illusion, 
of a strong movement for progressive talk radio, and they were bounced out of Air America in the early days, and that's a he said, she said story that uh, I won't try to recount because I was it just yeah, it doesn't matter. I wasn't there. Yeah, um, and then as uh, you know, Schultz will claim uh, correctly that he launched four months before Air America. And the backstory of Ed Schultz is important, too, because you were basically in contention for the startup funds that were raised by Debbie Stabenow's husband. Tom Athens, correct. And Tom Daschle, who was uh, the majority leader of the Senate briefly there during the uh, shuffle uh, with uh, Jeffords from Vermont, who swung over. Right. My lobbyists, that my guys are representing me, uh, went to Jerry Thompson, who was the first woman that was the Secretary of the United, State, uh, United States Senate, and she put them with a fundraiser. They brought the fundraiser to Tom Athens with the understanding that this would be raised to uh, put me on the air and uh, also to uh, to look for others. And you know, for some reason, uh, well, Ed was on the air then. I mean, he was in Fargo and Aberdeen and Pier, and mm-hmm. you know, he had uh, an audience of 812, but uh, he, was, he, he was, was actually on the air. I was not on the air. That and that was a 14 share, which is, uh, you know, it matters if you're in a big city, not so much in Fargo. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, with that seed money that uh, that Athens and Dashiell uh, put together, uh, then Schultz launched at the very beginning, the first week of January of 2004, and I think he only had two or three additional stations at that point. He start, you know where he started? He started in Needles, California, uh-huh. which is the little border town almost between California and Nevada, down towards Laughlin, Nevada. Isn't it a suburb of Barstow? Uh, it, you know, it, it doesn't even know where Barstow is. It's, it's, they, they suspect there is a place called Barstow, but uh, Needles was of the very first. And, and this, this is not to, to beat up on Ed. I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. This. This Ed was the first guy on the air, but it was Needles, California. He started, and here he is doing this show. Yeah. And he's doing his daily show and his three-hour, quote-unquote, syndicated show at that time. Mm-hmm. So then Air America launches in April of 2004. April 1st. Do you think that uh, that was a harbinger of wonderful things, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, and their original lineup included uh, now Senator Al Franken. And let's talk about Al for a moment, because I think Al was great on Saturday Night Live. I think his books uh, about the liar, 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 Rush Limbaugh were excellent. Yep. And, uh, you know, he proved himself to be a good policy wonk. But as a talk show host and uh, a progressive, uh, I think that he failed. And Air America was, you know, trying to deliver on the perception that they had established that it was going to be funny. And so they hired a comedian. The only problem was, even though they paid him almost $2 million a year and supported him with a staff uh, to the tune of another uh, 2 or $3 million a year, um, it wasn't funny. There were some occasional little bits and, and pre-produced shticks that they tried to do that might uh, elicit a smile now and then, but it really was not funny. And the other complaint I had was that it wasn't progressive, uh, he had on a lot of, uh, you know, very centrist uh, Democratic figures uh, on his show and really wouldn't push to engage uh, my wing, you know, the, the liberal um, uh, to radical wing of the Democratic Party. And so I think it uh, became clear after a while that Air America was fronting for the Democratic Party and a lot of us uh, kind of put up with that because it was a presidential election year. I was never wild about John Kerry as the nominee, 
but uh, we closed ranks because Bush was uh, the evil that had to be defeated. Correct. And Air America essentially became an echo chamber for uh, the Kerry campaign and for a few Democrats who were uh, trying to get elected in that cycle. And uh, Air America, in terms of ratings, peaked in its, its uh, first full year. By, by the end of the first year, they had achieved a, a two-point uh, share in some of the major markets. Now, the business plan behind that was a stinker, and they were running it like a political campaign where they just had to keep raising money and shoveling it into the beast. And they were buying time on clear channel radio stations in major markets from Boston to San Francisco to Los Angeles as the only way that they felt that they could get on. And it was a bet that if they put these programs on and paid clear channel, that they could get ratings and then convert to a traditional model, which is where you don't pay the station to carry your program. You split the commercial time. It's called barter. And that's how the station makes money. That's how the syndicator or network makes money. And uh, when they tried to shift to that model, the problem was that they hadn't established strong enough ratings, and uh, they started to lose stations. And so as we moved forward uh, in 2006, uh, Air America went into bankruptcy, and Franken left, and he was replaced by Tom Hartman uh, in that time period. And uh, since then, uh, that network, which is now defunct, um, and the people that it uh, propelled, including Hartman, Rachel Maddow, uh, Randy Rhodes, uh, they are surviving. And certainly Rachel uh, has has done the best uh, and, you know, is doing a great job on television. I I certainly give her a lot of credit. But the radio side of it then, uh, you know, suffered from a series of tabloid experiments, starting with Jerry Springer and ending with uh, Montel Williams. <laughs> Montel Williams? So, uh, and, and in between, they burned through $65 million and singed every major uh, liberal or democratic funding source so that when you and I went out there looking for investors, and I, I'll give you a chance to, to compare notes here in a second, but I had a professionally written business plan I had a projection that, uh, you know, with 30 to 40 stations in the major markets, that we could be profitable in 18 to 24 months. And I shopped that to Nancy Pelosi, uh, whom I had a good relationship with. I worked on a campaign as a consultant to her back in 96, and we've, we've been friendly. Uh, and I hit all of the, the rich people in San Francisco Uh, I dropped one off uh, to George Soros, number two guy, who told me that Mr. Soros doesn't make social investments. And uh, I tried the rich group of people who formed the uh, Media Alliance and said that they were going to incubate startups like mine and yours and never got a dime from any of them. And they would, you know, many of them would barely even respond in a respectful manner uh, to the efforts that we made to engage them. And so then in the summer of 2005, Hal Ginsburg and I bought the radio station in Monterey, KRXA, and launched the progressive talk format there because I felt that we needed to own stations, that that we couldn't just produce programming and hope that Clear Channel or CBS or other gatekeepers would uh, look on it favorably. And we couldn't get any other uh, like-minded people to invest in KRXA. And so Hal and his family... 
uh, basically provided the bulk of the money, and I chipped in some too. And so it's been a very frustrating uh, exercise. And, uh, you know, I don't feel that I was entitled to uh, success. I wanted to work for it. And I have been successful in many stops in my radio career in Chicago, in San Francisco, on FM and on AM. And I know the business. And as a station owner, I felt that uh, I I could show people that, you know, we were not only good in in messaging and on-air performance, but that we also understood how the business works. And none of that really produced the kind of support that you described, John, that the right wing delivered to people without any of the kind of obstacles or, or barriers that we encountered. I, uh, starting at the beginning with your conversation there, and, and, and you're, you're spot on in everything you said, um, if I can just shed a, a sort of a, a bounce back on that. Al Franken, um, they, they felt that Al was, was not really an accomplished talk radio personality. And they then brought in Catherine Lampier from, uh, or Lampier from uh, Minneapolis, right. NPR. Mm-hmm. And so that he had a professional in-studio um, uh, mic mate, if you will. Yeah. And the first thing that struck me was that they named the program the O'Franken Factor, mm-hmm. which I thought, you really want to say we're a second rate to Bill O'Reilly? Yeah. Why don't you just stand on your own and call it the Al Franken Show? or something really creative like that. But their whole idea was to turn it into a comedy network with a political bent. Well, comedy, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult to do comedy. It's, it's more difficult to do comedy, as you know, than anything else. Mm-hmm. And they brought in all of these people that had never been on the radio before. Randy Rhodes was the only person in their starting lineup that had any radio experience. And you know and I know it. there's only one way it happens, and that's through being exposed to and being on the air for a period of time. It takes a long time to develop, a, to be a skilled talk radio person. Um, Tom Lakis, who we never listen to because he appeals to uh, pubescent boys. Hi, I'm uh, Tom Lakis, and I want to know how old your daughter's got to be before I can sleep with her. That's right. Well, sleep is probably the, you're, being, you're, you're toning it down. Yeah. Uh, and he, he told a, a guy that worked me, with me in the very beginning, I think anyone can do one three-hour radio show. Um, I think there's a lot of people that could do two consecutive three-hour radio shows. That's where it ends. There are very few people that can get on the air and talk for two or three hours, three days in a row. Once you get to a week, there's only a handful of people that can do that. And I think he's absolutely right. Anybody can prepare and read something for three hours and talk to people and have their friends on to talk and have their friends call in. Mm-hmm. But that, that, that act only, only lasts so long. With Al, I, I, I think it's, it doesn't, I hope this is, doesn't sound bad, but Al was not really a, a great radio talk radio guy. I agree. Uh, um, and it, he didn't have the experience. It's, it's candidly, I mean, he had the wit, he had the charm, he had the, uh, the intelligence, um, but he, and, and the speed, but he didn't have the, the experience to go on talk radio. And he was, uh, he was down here appearing at the House of Blues. We brought him to San Diego. And, and I said to him, I, I said, I, I want you to know that what you've done is you've, you've created the awareness so that people like me and others that, um, that have a voice that want to get on radio ha- can actually have a bit of a road. It's, it's still pretty bumpy. It's not even paved. Um, but at least we have a, an opportunity now because you were a high-profile guy that they brought in. 
um, to create the the image that there is something there on, on on progressive talk. And he got you know kind of oh humble and you know oh gosh golly wow thing. But he I think what he did do is he created the awareness. And then Air America, um, what can you say? Eight CEOs in one bankruptcy in five years. Um, and hand-to-mouth and investors, and as you said, every single major donor that ever thought about writing a check to a Democrat was, was tapped not once but twice. They've, they've now recoiled. They think if anything is, is, is liberal and talk and radio in the same sentence, then it's Air America, and, and it isn't. And, and I think we have to look at Air America grossly mismanaged. Um, the Air America cruise was February, so two years ago now. The, the five of us that were on the air in the Monday to Friday lineup were, as you pointed out, Tom, Rachel, Randy, there was Lionel, and myself. A year later, all of us were gone, all of our own decisions. Nobody was fired except for Lionel, and they brought him back. Well, Randy, um, Randy was kind of fired. <laughs> Randy had, had a nice opportunity in her clause, in, 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 in her... Um, in her contract where she could walk in any time after April of that year. Mm-hmm. And they created a very nasty working environment for her. And she decided to exercise her option um, and knew that she would eventually land at, at Premier, which is Clear Channel, which is where she wanted to be. And she wanted away from them um, because they were not radio people. The last guys they had in there running it, um, they wanted to create a media company. And they thought that why should Huffington Post be the online source for everything? They needed to be that. And they spent actually $2 million in equipment and talent with Mark Marin and Sam Cedar the first year and basically neglected the radio side. Mm-hmm. Uh, they spent $2 million trying to do an online comedy show two hours a day. $2 million, two hours a day, didn't last a year, included equipment. We would get memos of new hires, and there would be no less than 50 emails that I received saying, welcome so-and-so to Air America, and every single solitary one of them were in Internet and in, in the IT division. Yeah. They did not have a director of marketing. They did not have a director of public relations. They did not have any advertising. Oh, my God. What was wrong with this picture? So we all decided it was going to go bump in the night, and it was time to you know say, check, please, take a taxi and leave. Um, Lionel went down with the ship, but then Lionel's a pro. He'll land somewhere. And, and I think that one of the problems that, that Air America – well, let's start at the very, very beginning. Air America had a terribly flawed business plan. You talked about the stations. In syndication, a syndicated programmer will keep five minutes of commercial time and they will leave the balance of an hour with the station. So what a wonderful business it is to own a radio station. You own the radio station, and your inventory is uh, provided free of charge, and you get the majority of the apples in the barrel. It's just, it's just a great business model. The other model works really well if you're on hundreds and hundreds of stations, because then you can take five minutes times 100 stations, and they're combine their audience and get a QM audience, and then right. sell it for what we would hope to be considerable amounts of money. Well, mm-hmm. they never achieved that. I well, think Air America never... I stations. I think the most Air America got to is in the 90s. Right. Um, but but Air America hadn't... Down to 60. John, just a sec. They had no sales operation. They had, uh, I, they had all these suits, uh, and I never understood what they did. I, as you know, I filled in for you, and I filled in for Tom Hartman. 
I had no direct uh, connection with the management, and so there are a lot of things that I was never privy to. But I knew who was on the the uh, employment roster, and there wasn't a director of sales. No. There there was no effort to align with uh, uh, you know uh, sympathetic or like minded. Uh, publications, institutions, or companies. And so they would uh, allow bulk sales of the network inventory, and that's where you got these, uh, uh, you know, aging cream commercials and all of this bullshit that didn't really uh, fit the audience and, in fact, was a tune-out. And so they, they really missed the boat in trying to package the programming to advertisers and they just they they were so arrogant they thought it was going to be a big overnight success and that advertisers would come to them and so they they fumbled badly in that and the other element was that they tried to force stations to take the whole lineup and it doesn't really work that way in the business and it hasn't since the 1950s uh stations don't just plug into a network and say take over my station unless you're in apple valley california and it's a re- station well, yeah. So um, they, they, they just really missed the mark in so many different ways. And we should take a moment here to acknowledge that the Drobnys <clears throat> resurfaced in about uh, 2005 with the, no, it was 2006. It was right at the time that Air America went into bankruptcy after the 2006 elections. And uh, the Drobnys started Nova M out of Phoenix. Yep. And I was my I they, they were an affiliate of mine. Uh, Nova M's station there was carrying the Peter B. Collins show. And then uh, they issued a press release announcing the syndication effort. And they named me and Mike Malloy as their first products. Only they hadn't asked me, approached me or signed any kind of an, an agreement. And I had to hire a lawyer because I took that as, okay, you want my program? Let's negotiate. Let's make a deal. And then we did make a deal with uh, Mike, uh, Dr. Mike. Um, can't yeah, think. Mike somebody. I can't, remember, yeah. Newcomb. Mike Newcomb. Mike Newcomb. He did the morning show there. He put a couple hundred thousand dollars into the station and did the morning show. Uh-huh. And so Newcomb made a deal with me, and then he got fired. And the Drobnys denied ever knowing about the deal he had made, and he maintains, and I believe him, that he had kept them informed every step of the way. So um, I felt badly burned by that, and uh, they offered to keep running my program, but late at night, and I declined. And so I left Phoenix and left uh, the Nova M people behind, and uh, they never really uh, got very far. They hired Randy after she left Air America, and then uh, they fumbled their way into bankruptcy, yep. and that took Randy off the air for one of the three times uh, that she had her, her uh, program interrupted. And so uh, those, those were really Air America and Nova M were the only two meaningful efforts. Meanwhile, uh, Jones... Look, look at what you're talking about. You're yeah. using as an example the way the liberals have approached this medium of talk radio that you and I know is a very valuable medium. It's the two examples we can point to are Air America and Nova M, and they're both dog, dog's breakfasts. They're, they're both... Hmm. Uh, they're, they're appalling, and they're mismanaged, and they're directionless, and they're fatally flawed. Yeah. And the right can look at that and say, these guys can't run it. We have nothing to worry about because they can't do this. I was in the room with Sean Hannity said, Air America's going to go down, and I promise you it's going to go down. And, you know, I thought, you arrogant bastard. But at the time, 
I realized he was right unless they changed, unless they got competent management in with significant funding and concentrated on putting out a good program. And and they never did. So the, the two examples you're using are really the ones that, that people know or knew of and that that, that, that failed. Uh, you know, the, the station in, uh, in Phoenix was being run by a young guy who actually tried to actually turned it around and was making money with it. And then the Drobnys went sideways with him, and, and he was out on the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Manzo, I'm talking about, it was Randy right. Rhodes' producer-slash-boyfriend at the time. And so we, we've got all this inside baseball stuff that's gone over the years, and, and you hit the nail on the head, and that is that you know you decided to buy a station. And that was my concept, too. When I left Air America, I had formed Southpaw Media. And the idea was to acquire a radio station, and prove that this concept works, and then, quote-unquote, franchise radio stations around the country. Find a couple of lawyers in St. Louis and a couple of doctors in Dallas or Denver or Detroit or wherever that were really interested in in the liberal message, the progressive message. And we would provide them with a McDonald's, you know, a Holiday Inn. We would be a mm-hmm. radio station in a box. We would negotiate and find the station. We would do what's called a, an LMA, License uh, Marketing Agreement, which for the, the audience is in the form of lease. And uh, we would install the general manager and hire and train the salespeople. We provide the same color scheme, the same music, the same logos, and uh, we would provide an easy to work website that everybody had a common website on and on and on. And we would provide the programming. And we have one of the great program directors in America. Who runs a, he's probably the best talent uh, talk radio talent manager or consultant that I've ever run across. Coach, and um, he would pick a morning or an afternoon guy that was unique to that market being it's different in, in you know in St. Louis you better know who plays third base for the Cardinals or you're not mm-hmm. going to go very far right. and somebody different in in Fort Myers and somebody different again in Bangor Maine and you just you have all these different people in afternoon or morning drive and then the rest of the programming would be us and I had Michael Dukakis on my advisory board, Robert Greenwald, I had Jim Dean. We had an extraordinary uh, pedigree of, of highly successful, experienced radio people. And our idea was, you know, that, that to be the anti-Air America, where Air America, it, it, it just talk basic fundamental business. In any business, you have a product, a distribution method, and a consumer. In our business, the product is your show, my show, Hartman show, Randy show. The distribution method is the radio station, and the consumer is the listener. They had a liberal product trying to reach a liberal audience using the the conservatives at Clear Channel at all as a distribution method. They were in the unenviable position of having the faucet turned off at any point in time and kept off for as long as they as, as the person wanted with with no apologies. They're completely vulnerable. It was an enormously vulnerable business plan. Whereas with you and I, if we control the stations, we control the product directly to the listeners. And we knew at that point in time there were about ten of us that were were capable nationally syndicated talk radio broadcasters. We like you plan to use the weekends to develop and, and, and incubate new talent, and uh, so that when someone like Rachel went from radio to television, you would have somebody else that had been training for a couple of years um, in, uh, in, in taking, uh, go, go, into, uh, go into that position. So we had this, this extraordinary landscape of a plan to balance the airwaves. We couldn't get any money. We needed, we had a station here in San Diego, we spent 
tens of thousands of dollars on uh, on legals uh, to to consummate the deal. Uh, we needed to raise two million. I got to a million one, and then the recession hit and wiped us out. So we recalibrated over the uh, the holiday season. Uh, went back in, said, okay, we need a million. We got some concessions, uh, very strong concessions from the guy that owned the radio station, who happened to be um, a very serious conservative. Mm-hmm. But he thought we were far more pro. You know, he, liberals he could handle clear channel. He couldn't. You know, so he he thought having us in the building was okay. But he bent over backwards to help. Us. I got to $400,000 out of a million I need and couldn't get above that. My largest investor was a Republican uh-huh. who said, let me see if I get this right. San Diego is now voted Democrat for the first time since Roosevelt. There are now more registered Democrats in San Diego than there are Republicans. There are five stations on the air that are totally conservative and none that are liberal. Wait a minute. This is a market opportunity. This is a fundamental business market opportunity. And he was the, you know, our biggest, our biggest uh, investor. So it's it's been a hard road, and you're absolutely right. It's been difficult. You and I have been out there beating the bushes. We knew that Air America, flawed plan or not, was out there doing the same thing. And here we are at the end of the day. Now you and I talking last week, and isn't it ironic that the Democratic machine has now sought fit to go out there and say, hey, sports fans, why don't you call into the shows? And they send around a roadmap. Here's the name of the show. These are the hours it's on. Here's their call-in number. And here's how to behave. Do this, this, and this. And here are your talking points. Well, Christ, this is stuff that the Republicans have been doing for years, even on their own stations, to, to fuel energy and, and, and create a like-mindedness among the, among the sheep. It's, it's also a lame imitation of what produced the so-called Tea Party movement and the people who took their guns and obstructed the town hall meetings over health care last August. That all was corporate-funded and uh, uh, instilled and stoked. And, uh, you know, the Obama team was caught flat-footed on that. And, what, six months later... They're saying, hey, maybe we should get people to call into the talk shows and try to present our point of view. What do you think? How about the fact that they'd been up front, and this is an outfit that went into power, uh, running the most masterful campaign that you and I have witnessed. The communication was extraordinary, notwithstanding the fact they didn't want to talk to us or talk radio. Mm -hmm. But they did a very effective job at messaging and get the message. Now, it was easier with Bush in office. And and that's one thing. You know, when we, we talk about Rush, when when he came into into um, uh, in, into distribution, there was a, a complete landscape of available FM frequency, excuse me, AM frequencies that they weren't they didn't know what to do with because music had, had gone away. And the second thing was he had a Clinton presidency. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we were able to do okay on the strength of the fact that we were out there appealing to people that hated George Bush and his administration. Um, so. It, it became a little easier to attract people. And I think it's, it's time that you and I told your audience that you and I made significant financial sacrifices to do what we did from 2004 and to what you're doing today. And we have spent a lot of our own money. We have gone without incomes. We really believe that this could take off. And to do this and to be as effective as we've been and to be told by movers and shakers in the Congress that we were significantly responsible to the House coming over our way in 06 and that they couldn't have done it without us, even though there weren't that many of us at that time. Uh, and uh, we were significant in, in pushing the, um, the the Democrats to the Senate victory and the large Senate majority and the uh, uh, and the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's really amazing that they're now just getting it. I think the people listening to the show are going to say, oh, these two guys are just 
hissing and moaning about what could have been. And it's, no, we're, we're talking about what is now, and why, why are they just waking up to this when the Republicans have woken up to this? And as I told you, Harold Ickes in 2003, yeah, we need to do something. Still yeah. waiting, Harold. Yeah. Harold. Still waiting. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Isn't it, isn't it amazing? Well, and at the time that uh, I decided to sign off my syndicated show, I was up to nine stations, uh, Seattle, uh, weekends in Portland, uh, Eureka, Coos Bay, San Francisco, Monterey. I didn't have to fight for that one. Uh, and a couple of stations in, in Montana. Um, I just reached the point where I didn't see a big enough future. And because of the the economic squeeze, and I had lost some clients in my business who essentially had been subsidizing uh, my foray into syndicated radio, um, I I was uh, on the brink. And then two things pushed me over. One was that uh, it wasn't John Scott, but the uh, Uber boss in San Francisco at Clear Channel, for some reason, just would not uh, permit me to go on live in the afternoon. They ran my show at midnight, and I had built up an audience there and uh, had had pretty strong support. But uh, they wanted what they called red meat. And they were really blunt with me that because I'm not a name caller, and even though I offer very strong opinions, I do it in a way that is seen as too polite and too mild-mannered. And I explained to them that, number one, that's who I am. And in radio, you've got to be real. You have to be who you are because the phonies... Uh, are easy to spot. And number two, that the audience I was trying to attract are people who generally listen to NPR. And they don't want name-calling and red meat and the kind of of, uh, uh, style and tactics that are used by the right. But the Clear Channel program directors who were put in charge of their 35, that was the peak, 35 stations that carried uh, uh, Air America or other forms of uh, progressive talk, were all conservatives. They all came over from the right-wing stations and just did double duty. And so you could not penetrate the mindset that the way to win was to be like Rush and Sean and and Savage and uh, their ilk. And so uh, it was the rejection of a live clearance in San Francisco. And then when Air America announced that Montel Williams was replacing Tom Hartman, I said, okay, the die is cast. Uh, I, I cannot compete uh, on a national basis with uh, idiots who don't understand the progressive audience and and why they should be approached differently. Well, a couple of things about Montel Williams, which speaks volumes about the then management, team number eight at Air America. Um, He did two things within um, 30 days of of being on the air. He did three things. One, he he stood at a convention in in Los Angeles of, of radio station programmers and said, I'm looking forward to learning to be a talk radio host. And I had a program director come up to me after that and said, he ain't learning at my school. Mm-hmm. He's got to go out and prove himself. I'm not going to put a guy on like that. Next thing he did is he uh, announced in a, an article or an interview, and in I, I think the New York Daily News or the New York Times, that uh, he was actually a, um, a Republican. He'd been a lifelong Republican, um, which, of course, he became the flagship of Air America. The third thing that he did is he announced that this was only a temporary gig, and that within the next few years, he was planning on running 
for office. The aforementioned John Scott, who was the program director that came over from the right side in, in uh, San Francisco over to um, to also overseeing the uh, Green 960, um, the, the liberal talk station in your neck of the woods, Peter, he said to me, that's what I want. I want to take a guy that's going to spend a couple of years and then learning on my dime, and then he's going to leave me and, uh, and start taking up a, a political career. I want people who want to be a talk show host. So there were three things right away, notwithstanding the fact that it's very, very difficult to come from another medium into talk radio. You look at the people that they had guesting at, uh, at, um, on Air America from time. Richard Belzer, lovely guy, great actor on, uh, on uh, Law & Order SVU. Mm-hmm. Um, not very good as a talk show host. Wanted to be a talk... You can want it all you want, but you got to go out and you got to you got to pay your your dues on this. They brought in Joy Behar. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was very difficult for these people to to make the transition. The only one I can think of who was successful in another medium, who became a successful radio talk show host, was actually Bill O'Reilly. Um, he was on, as you know, what was it extra or something in the morning, what was that afternoon entertainment show? And he went from there to talk radio and then from there to to Fox News. Mm-hmm. But uh, outside of Bill O'Reilly, um, there really hasn't been a successful story of a person that has been significant in another media that has been, become a talk radio host. I'm talking television or motion pictures. They, it's just a different ballgame. I interviewed Dan Rather one time, one of, one of my fond memories is that he said the difference between radio and television is in television you're talking to millions of people all at one time. In radio you're talking to millions of people one person at a time. And I think that 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 really sums it up because radio is, as we both know, something you do when you're doing something else. I mean, you're driving the car, you're listening to radio. You're working around the house, you're listening to radio. You're in the backyard trimming the, uh, the plants, you're listening to radio. Whereas television, you sit down and you watch TV and you can do this with one or 10 or 20 people and you can enjoy it just as much, whereas nobody says, let's go listen to the radio, you got to hear this, and two or three people gather around. That just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Not since the days of Arthur Godfrey, I guess. It's kind of like onanism. Best enjoyed best enjoyed by yourself. It's amazing that after all the sacrifices that have been made and the success that, that was garnered by progressive talk, that now we're at the stage where there's only been two stations uh, liberal stations that have gone on the air in the last two years. One um, author, Stephen King, and his wife launched a liberal station in some small town in Maine, mm-hmm. a Bar Harbor or something like that, and they, they launched it for their own personal edification. Yeah, like Clint Eastwood, he's got a radio station and he programs jazz because that's what he likes to hear. Yeah, exactly, and that was the that was play Misty for me, right? I mean, that came out of that that whole thing out of Carmel. Mm-hmm. Back in that film, and and the second one is a young guy that you and I know, Jeff Santos in Boston, who yeah. somehow, again with Dukakis on his board, managed to uh, raise a few dollars and acquire the daytime portion of a sports station um, mm-hmm. in uh, in Boston, and he is still on the air, and he has his show in the morning, and then he's got Ed, Randy, and uh, and Tom, Stephanie, or excuse me, Ed, Stephanie, Stephanie and Tom, right. and uh, that's. You know, it's six o'clock. He's off the air, and they do sports, and they do Bruin games, and and all sorts of stuff like that. So, well, and he's he and I have been in touch recently. Uh, the owner of the station just added the Spanish language Red Sox play-by-play, which uh, won't help the uh, the ratings of the daytime programming. But uh, the he, one thing he can't control it. The the the, the 
thing that I learned about our audience is, I said the one thing, there's actually two types of programming they despise, sports and country music. Mm -hmm. They don't. And, you know, you were talking, just to switch a little, you were talking about Air America not having any salespeople. Um, John Zogby did a study on the entertainment habits of conservatives and and liberals. Um, There's a vast difference. And, And basically, when both conservatives and liberals are watching CBS, we watch 60 Minutes, they watch Survivor. Um, when, I mean, they, they don't read, yeah. and we read. So bookstores, coffee shops, they, they, if they do read, they read self-help books. Um, they don't go to motion pictures like we do. If they do go to motion pictures, it's Terminator and Alien and, and stuff like that. Uh, they really, they, they shop at Food for Less and Walmart, they don't go to Nordstrom's and Macy's. And you find out that the liberals are more intelligent, more, I'm talking across the board, mm-hmm. a higher grade of intelligence, certainly more awareness, um, more willing to take other people's point of views. There's more women that listen to liberal talk than, um, than conventional um, talk radio, which is a, a boys, uh, an all-boys club for the most part. We approach Birkenstock. That we couldn't get them to advertise. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> and I, I approached every Chardonnay maker, every Brie cheese distributor, just trying to, and Volvo, you know, none of them would come up for it. Uh, I, John, I do want to mention one thing, just so that we are, are relatively uh, complete in our conversation about this. The Jones Radio Network, which was sold a couple of years ago and now has the name Dial Global, and I've never met Mr. Dial or Mr. Global. Right. Uh, they did succeed in competing with Air America. They syndicated Stephanie Miller from the start. They had Tom Hartman uh, before and after uh, he went to Air America. Schultz. Uh, the Schultz Show, uh, Bill Press, is uh, distributed by, uh, on a, he's national, but because he's on in the early morning in the East, he doesn't do so well in the West. Um, and so we do need to give them credit, because they did a professional job of running a radio syndication service, and um, they did pick some, some good talent, in particular uh, Miller and Hartman, and I think that uh, they deserve credit for understanding that Air America was a flash in the pan and that people who really paid attention to business and hired radio professionals, every one of the people who uh, has been on the Jones slash Dial Global lineup, uh, has extensive background in radio. Right. And they also have a, a crack sales operation called Media America, which at one time represented Air America. But uh, we, we do need to just let people know that uh, there were professionals who saw this opportunity, and to their credit, their programs are still on the air. Absolutely, and uh, it's headed by a a wonderful woman named Amy Bolton, who actually became um, the uh, broadcast management personality and uh, award winner of the year two years in a row from basically what she did with Ed Schultz, taking Ed Schultz as the the, the 
token liberal, if you will, and launching him. Now, it happened to be at the same time as Air America was launching, give or take a couple of months. But Ed was really at the the forefront, uh, and they had money to launch him. They had a skilled salespeople, skilled staff, and uh, skilled distribution. And they knew they knew radio. Yeah. So that, that's really what what made the the difference. And it's yeah, you know, we we look at you know you talk about the, we drink wine, they drink beer, uh, and part of the problem that Clear Channel has experienced is they send they didn't have um, divergent um, salespeople. So in San Diego. You had the station. You had the, the two kids going out selling selling the two stations, and you had, you know, Ed Schultz. Or excuse me, Ed, Ed Franken was fifty dollars for a minute, and uh, Rush was five hundred a minute, and they were getting a ten percent commission. Mm-hmm. So, do they sell the one that everybody knew and that they could make ten times as much money? I think so. So, with that, that they came around. Well, we can't sell this stuff. Nobody wants. Well, the kids weren't. They weren't compensating them. Plus, they had. They didn't have a dedicated sales staff. If you had right. a dedicated sales staff that said, "Call on the wineries, call on the restaurants, call on the travel agencies," because our audience is affluent. They're educated. They travel. Call on the investment funds. Uh, I mean, we've got. We we know where to go. And you just wonder why nobody else did. But John, we have to. Their mindset. We have to pause for a message from my wine sponsor. Now that you mention it, can you stand by? Are you going to open a, a pop one? Our program is sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link or clink on it if you like on my homepage at peterbcollins.com. There's a special introductory offer just for you. John Elliott, I do have to thank you because when you let me fill in for you on your uh, AM station that served San Diego, it completed my sweep of North America because I had been on in Canada a little bit and I'd been on in the United States in many places, but never on the Mexican radio. And that was so bizarre when we'd take a break and there was a there was election going on in Baja, right? That's right. And these commercials would come on that I, I were partly in Spanish, and uh, boy, that was bizarre. And I never, they, they give the station IDs, but I could never pick up what the actual call letters were. What, yeah. AMs? X, X-E-R-E. X-E-R-E. X-A-R-E. Yeah. But if you say that in Spanish, it uh, it becomes... Uh, S-A-R-A. Yeah, that, that's what it was. And with the station was licensed to San Diego. And you talk about fitting, uh, fitting us in. Uh, I had a, the show that ran before me was Dennis Miller. And after me, they had Nancy Grace. Um, so you can imagine what type of audience we had. I, after 
Well, it's, it's people who... 40% of the audience of the station, but again, it wasn't enough to attract advertisers. Well, with that kind of a lineup, you know, your listeners needed neck braces to prevent whiplash. <laughs> they did, didn't they? <laughs> they did, yes. Well, you know, it, it's always great to talk to you, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity of coming on. And, and I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that there are some skilled professionals out there. There's not a lot of money that's being thrown at our side to enable us to buy radio stations uh, and put the message out there. So the format is what the format is right now. Air America's gone away. And there, I don't want to say the format is stuck with six or seven or eight of us, but there really is no place to incubate any new talent because they're certainly not letting them on the uh, on the right-wing stations. It, it's sort of like classical music dropped in the middle of rap and, and, uh, uh, and hard rock. It's just, yeah. it's just not going to work in that. So well, and, and, and when it all started back in 2004, uh, I looked at this and I said, well, this has got to work. And I projected that we, we, you know, the uh, collective of uh, left-leaning talk show hosts, right. would be on about 200 stations in a two- to three-year period. And I thought that was realistic at the time. And I still believe that if Air America had not fumbled, because uh, it, it really was the focal point. You know, when we, we just mentioned Jones and Dial Global, most of our listeners have never heard of them. Right. Uh, because they didn't promote themselves as a network. They pr- uh, promoted their individual shows. Well, Premier, for example, distributes Rush Limbaugh, but who knows that? Yeah. And that's owned by Clear Channel. Right, yeah. So uh, I do believe the well is poisoned, but uh, I hope it's not permanent. And whether it's me, you, or the next generation of progressive talkers like uh, Chank from the Young Turks, um, you know, I do hope that we get another chance. And I was hoping, too, and this is another uh, situation we see from the Obama administration and the way they've written off uh, talk radio or even balance in the radio medium. Uh, Julius Janikowski, the new chair of the Federal Communications Commission, has declined to take any regulatory action to level the playing field. And I'm not somebody I worked under the Fairness Doctrine in the 70s and 80s, and uh, I found it cumbersome, and I don't think it's practical to try to return to that. I don't either. But there are ways that the FCC could uh, put some teeth in the license renewal process and force the owners of stations to prove that they've served their communities. That's it. And prove that they have offered more than uh, one viewpoint on the the monopolies, uh, the monopoly broadcast fac- facilities that they operate. And so this is another missed opportunity. And, John, I'm really glad we had this chance to talk. It ran longer than you and I had expected, but I hope that people find this interesting. I don't think we're too whiny. I think people need to know the backstory of what happened. Well, they also and, need to know why you're doing a podcast and why I'm planning a podcast is because there's there's not a lot of interest in the conservative-owned stations into putting liberals on the air. We are stuck at however number of stations there are that have the existing hosts on there. And as they say, you know, there's only been two stations go on in the past two years. That's not a way to expand a brand. So it may be the next generation. It's certainly going to be a while because after this Taste of Air America, um, and, and you know and I know that we spoke to some significant wealthy people and some movers and shakers in Washington who said, you know, Air America has has ruined it, and they need to go away, and they need to be gone a while. And so in a year or two or three, you can start talking. People are going to say, oh, that's Air America. It's going to need some time, and in the meantime, we just have to build our audience and appeal to uh, our listeners uh, using podcasts. Um, you know, more and more shows are going that way. Um, well, but, but John, uh, I, I just want to offer a slightly different tone. I'm not being critical of you. I love the podcast because it enables me to continue to cover the issues that I care about. 
I'm reaching some of the same listeners, but many more uh, across the nation and in other parts of the world. It cost me uh, about a tenth of what it costs to do a satellite-delivered commercial radio syndicated program. And as you heard at the beginning, I'm getting great response from listeners who are willing to kick in five, ten bucks a month. It's wonderful. Uh, And it does help me cover the costs here. I'm not getting paid, but uh, I'm not losing money. And that is a a bright spot. Plus, uh, new people are discovering me and the work that I do every day through iTunes and uh, through our Tell-A-Friend campaign. And so I actually, uh, there there are certain podcasts at the peak of, uh, and and the other thing is, we know exactly how many people listen, because my website gives me hard numbers of who has downloaded each show. And there are some shows that exceed the estimated audience that I had with nine commercial radio stations in the West. And so um, I'm actually very pleased to be a podcaster. I'm proud of what we're doing here. I think that over time it's going to grow, and we will attract uh, advertisers to uh, reach this very select audience that uh, has chosen to listen to the program. And uh, people are becoming more savvy in using iPods and their phones and other devices uh, to take this program into their cars and into the gym when they're working out or uh, on a hike around the block. And so uh, I, I feel that it's, it's a good shift for me. I, I didn't expect it at the time, but it's worked out very well, and I'm pretty bullish on where it will take us in the future. I'm, I want to jump on that bandwagon, too. You've talked to me in the last couple of months, and you encouraged me to get do a, do a podcast. And uh, I come at it from the point of view that I'm not technologically adept, so I have to figure a way. Maybe I have to hire a 12-year-old or something to help me with this. But I... I Everybody knows that the, the daytime is the biggest audience, and I was on it nights on Air America. However, I did have the largest percentage of my listeners on podcasts of any of the Air America personalities, and mm-hmm. that was because we were on so late in the East Coast that people in the East Coast would record it overnight, and because it was a relatively current program, whatever had happened during the day would be recapped that night, as you know, and then so people getting up and walking uh, their dog or listening to, you know, listening in their car on their way in or or on their bike at the gym or whatever, they could listen to my show. So I know that there was a pretty strong audience, and I had some emails when I left Air America saying you were the only reason I, I subscribed to Air America's podcast, which is enormously flattering. But I, I know that there is that market out there that you that was familiar with you and I, and I think that you know it's radio by appointment. Um, people listen to it on their own when they're doing something else, and I think that having a podcast is... Uh, is, I think, the way to go. I mean, well, I know, let, I know let's, people let's, say, well, how about you do a, a daily radio program streaming? And I said, well, you know, uh, who's going to know? How are we gonna, how's anybody going to do that? Mm-hmm. And again, we're going into our pockets, and again, we're working for no money, and we're just not going to do it. We've, we've had that. I, it, it's one thing to do a podcast as you're doing it. You can do it when you feel like it. You, you know, you, you, we all need to make a living. And you can do it on a Monday at noon or, or uh, today at 11.30 or, or Thursday at 2 in the afternoon. You can do it whenever you want to do it and whenever you can fit in your guest uh, roster and, mm-hmm. and just put it up there and uh, the people get used to it. They get to pull it down when they want and they know that it's going to contain the, the solid information that they've looked for from Peter B. Well, John, I want to do something. We're at the very end of this podcast. Let's do a little test here. I'd like you to give out an email address where people could contact you to urge you to launch a podcast. And I'm going to sweeten it because, let's see what i got over here. I've got uh, some DVDs, uh, like Murder, Lies, and uh, Voting Spies, or whatever that's called, 
about the uh, Clint Curtis story in Florida. I'm going to so, send myself an email to win one of those. All right. What I want to do is uh, ask people to email you. Give us the address right now, What uh, a public email that you, you don't mind giving out. John Elliott Show at Gmail. Okay. J-O-N-E-L-L-I-O-T-T. Okay. And I am not going to post that in the show file, all right? I want people who are actually listening this late in, in this conversation to email you because I think it's going to show you that podcast listeners um, are loyal, that they listen. And I think on a subject like this, I think people will listen all the way to the end. And so after you get all those emails, I want you to draw one. Send me their, uh, make sure you include a snail mail address, folks. Uh, send it to me, and I will reward them with the, the free DVD. How's that? Perfect. Wonderful. That'll be just grand. Thank you for doing that. We'll do a little market research here. I appreciate your talent, and I appreciate your friendship more. John, this was great. Good to talk with you, and uh, we'll do it again, okay? Look forward to it, Peter. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Email Show at gmail.com. I insist. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling